Welcome to I Communicate on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome to I Communicate, the Mindset Go Radio Show. Great to be back here on a Thursday. And, you know, I got to tell you, I'm going to jump right into this today. Um, you know, th- there's a, a program I do, and since I started Mindset Go six years ago, it's probably the program I've done more than anything else because it's a, 90, it's a 60 and 90 minute program, and it's called How to Differentiate Yourself and How to Sell Yourself, essentially. And there's a signature piece to this program. And the signature piece is to kill the elevator pitch, that the elevator pitch, which so many people have taught over the years, is just a horrible, get rid of it concept. And and as I was driving in here today, Ted, I was thinking to myself, how did the elevator pitch originate? Well, you're in an elevator. You only have a certain amount of time to talk to someone, so you better have something to say. But somehow that morphed into... You better capture someone's attention and engage someone to you better have a stale, template-based way to describe yourself in 20 seconds. Right. It's like that game of telephone again. It just kind of loses its meaning over time. So so what's interesting is, so it started out as you only got a shorter period of time to capture someone's attention. It's morphed into a way to describe yourself. And what blows my mind about this elevator pitch concept is, why would you ever lead with something if you're not sure the other person would be interested in what you have to say? Because if someone were to say to me, well, what does Mindset Go do? And I said, oh, well, we do sales and leadership training. Well, if the person I'm talking to has no vested interest in sales and leadership training, I've already lost them. So that doesn't seem like a good strategy. So the reason why I start the show with this today is because in that program, one of the things I do is I teach people a conversation process, which you're going to have to reach out to me to learn it. I'm not giving it away on the show, but I teach people a conversation process. So instead of blurting out a generic way to describe your company, you ask a couple of questions to know how to position your answer. Now, why does this tie into the show today? Because the show today is on motivation. And what's so interesting to me about how, how as human beings, we choose to motivate other human beings, it's often a very template-based approach, just like an elevator pitch. You know, I, I, I got to tell you, Ted, I go into companies and organizations, I do training, and I walk in, and invariably, I see painted all over the walls core values. And, and you know those motivational pictures and posters that have become so chic now? Sure, yeah. I see those all over the place about grit and perseverance and, and, and determination and all these buzzwords and core values all over the place. And there's this like assumption that because there's pictures up and there's words on the wall that that's going to motivate people. Yeah, but through osmosis. Through osmosis, brilliantly said. So it, it occurred to me. I was doing, I was participating in a panel discussion the other day on the new normal, what future of leadership is going to be like. And one of the things that came up in the discussion is with so much virtual communication, 
how do you motivate people in the same way? You're not getting as much of that face-to-face contact. And in my experience, there's typically three lazy ways companies depend on to motivate people. First, obviously money, right? It all starts with money, whether it's benefits, profit share, incentives. A spiff. Yeah, a spiff, uh, uh, a high salary, anything like that. That's one of the big motivators. The second big motivator is benefits, right? And those benefits could play out as far as how much time off you get, the your health insurance coverage, anything under that kind of benefit window, right? And the third and the most recent benefit that's now playing out more than it ever has is work schedule flexibility, right? So many people want that flexibility in their schedule, whether it's working at home, whether it's working different sets of hours. So these are the go-to things that companies rely on to motivate their teams. And why this came to a head for me is because I was talking to a CEO, Ted, the other day, and this is what he said to me. He said, Mark, I got to tell you, I'm so frustrated with my team. You know, they're all paid above average salary based on what, what their jobs require. They get a tremendous benefit package. They get a flexible work schedule. And they're still ungrateful. And they're not productive. And they're not doing the things they need to do. What else can I do? I said, ask them. I don't know. You know, one idea would be to ask your team what does motivate them, what would motivate them. Instead of you just assuming the same thing motivates every single person. And what I'm talking about is there's this thing, Ted, called personalized recognition. I'm also talking about personalized motivation. And you just can't use the same formula for everything, just like the same... Or everybody. Or everybody. Just like an elevator pitch, you can't have one elevator pitch. And Ted, you know, one of the things that I I often find myself um, coaching people on is situational awareness. And this is just another form of situational awareness. So I, I want, as we go through the show today, I want you to think about your role in your professional career and how motivation plays in that role. And I want you to think about if your boss were to come up to you this afternoon and say, Ted, say wonderful Chris Thompson walks up to you this afternoon and says, Ted, I got to tell you, you're a huge asset to the station. What can I do? I want to really understand you and how I can motivate you. What can I do? What, honestly, Ted, what do you think you would say if he did that? I would say we don't have enough money for that. <laughs> but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I digress. That that was just because I know Dr. Chris would enjoy that. That's great. Um, the, the, uh, the thing I would ask for most is an opportunity to review my performance mm. in person, not in a form uh, issued by the HR department or somebody I don't know, but a in-person interview to review my performance. That would really charge me up in the in the workplace. Well, I, I love that. And and I think, you know, what you're talking about there is really interesting because people want to know how they're doing. People want to know not just how they're doing. They want to know where and how they're contributing, you know, where they're most valuable. So I love that answer. Well, the thing your uh, client said about what more can I do, that's a top-down philosophy response 
when when you're in the business of serving your cust your customers, you can only do that by serving your employees first. There's no doubt. Richard Branson talks about that all the time. And so he, here's here's what was interesting, Ted, about this exchange. So this particular CEO asked me to do like a consult or interview with this employee in question who they were really frustrated by. And I asked the CEO, I said, okay, tell me a little bit about this employee so I know going into the conversation what to expect, how they might respond and react and such. So first of all, the best part of this whole thing was, so I, they did. And so I start this conversation with said employee. Ten minutes in the conversation, my perception was this person is nothing like how the CEO described. So that was an interesting start. But here's what was interesting. As I went through that conversation, I asked that employee, what, what motivates you? And so she said, well, I mean, I think money to some extent motivates everybody, but it's not my primary driver. And what she went on to say is there's three things that she said frustrates her about this CEO. One is they're always, they don't typically plan out projects So all the projects end up taking more time. They're very inefficient. It creates more work for this specific employee. They said that the communication method from this CEO to this employee, the CEO is constantly texting this employee, can you do this, can you do that? And she has many times said to the CEO, can we just centralize everything in a Google Doc and not do some texts and emails so it's kind of all over the place? And the third thing is there was some micromanagement going on about projects being done. So at the end of the call, Ted, I said to her, I said, so let me ask you, from a recognition, from a motivation, from a job satisfaction, if I could get your boss to execute the three behaviors, how would that impact your motivation? And she had been pretty monotone the whole call. And she said, that would be amazing. Like that would mean the world to me if you could get my boss to do those things. And so when I think about motivation, The first level of this discussion to me is not just not assuming what other people want, but sometimes the little things or what we may perceive as the little things could be a really big thing to someone else. And Ted, I haven't talked to the CEO. I'm going to be talking to her tomorrow. But the the real interesting thing is, is one of the questions I need to ask her is, why are you in such a rush all the time? And why are you unwilling you know, what goals do you have? And, and you know what's funny, Ted? When I ask CEOs often about their goals, uh, then, the, then I'll say to them, and where did you pick those goals? And why did you pick those goals? And they look at me blankly as if they're trying to satisfy some societal rules. But I just have to tell you that I think, I think connecting with human beings and really understanding what their motivations are totally makes a huge difference from not just a communication perspective, but from a hierarchy perspective, you know, and, and what's funny is I will say this heading into, I know we're heading into our break shortly, but I, I will say this, you know, if you're a parent, think about your child for a minute. When you ask them to do the chores, part of what happens when you ask a child to do chores is there's an expectation. You live here. You know, I, I provide you shelter, food, whatever. So this is not a democracy. You just need to do your chores. But see, my thought process is, Part of what we need to do as parents when it comes to motivation is we need to make certain tasks that kids do not seem like such a burden 
So they don't look at it as such a negative and their mindset can be shifted a little bit. And I think if we started to understand how to motivate kids, whether it's schoolwork, responsibilities, chores, uh, good social media habits, whatever they are, I think if we knew how to, how to motivate them, it would make a huge difference. Absolutely. Getting uh, anybody to engage in the world that they're in makes their lives and your life a lot better. All right. So, so when we come back for, for our second segment, we're going to talk more about what are some different things, the little things that leaders and companies can do to motivation. Later on in the show, we'll get into knowing how to motivate yourself and recognizing your motivations. But for now, I'm Mark Altman. This is I Communicate. We'll be right back. Now, I Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to iCommunicate. If you'd like to call on the show, it is 508-871-7000. That number? 508-871-7000. So anyway, uh, you know, I want to start off this uh, second segment with a a brief story because it really relates to motivation. And I think, you know, what I'm talking about now is motivating people to talk, motivating people to feel comfortable. And so one of the things I do sometimes for companies and sometimes privately for cities and towns is I do parenting workshops. And one of the points I make in in one of the parenting workshops I do is I talk about empathy and vulnerability. And what I mean by that is a lot of parents take the approach that they don't burden, they don't want to burden their kids with their own problems and their struggles at workplace or in various relationships because kids have enough to deal with. And so they're like, well, I don't want to push that on my kids. They, they might see it as codependency. They might feel guilty. There's a lot of factors going into the parent's decision to do that. And one of the points I make to parents is you have to do that because that's where, that's where kids are going to learn empathy. So if you walk home from work and you're in a bad mood, if they don't know why you're in a bad mood, they're just going to think you're being a grump. But if they say, you know, if they're like, you know, what's wrong? And you're like, I had the worst experience at work today or – my mother, my father, my brother, my sister pissed me off or whatever it is that's getting under their, my best friend is getting under their skin. Now it opens up a line of communication where the child doesn't have to drive the communication. They can be in a listening situation and where you're actually sharing what upsets you. And then it creates a line of communication. So now when the kid has a similar situation, they're going to feel comfortable talking to you about it because they'll know you'll have gone through it. By the example you set. Exactly. And so here's the, here's the analogy. In the workplace, there's a lot of ups and downs. I continue to literally, I'm not embellishing or being melodramatic. I continue to wake up every day, Ted, and be blown away by how many opportunities there are over the course of a day for me to be disappointed. Either in myself, in somebody else. It's countless every day. Right. So when I think of being in a leadership position at a company, this is what I want you to think about. I know it's drilled into you, whether you're actually doing it or not. I don't know, but I know it's drilled into you to recognize your team, recognize them in an authentic way. Tell them what did they do? Why was it meaningful? 
What was their process that made it successful? Like that kind of thing is so critical as a motivator to recognize people. But it's not just the positive. You have to share the ups and the downs and see if you share the failures or the downs. And I remember from the show a couple of weeks ago, I hate that word failure. But if you share the downs in the disappointments and you can actually talk through those in an accountable, blameless way, that is motivating for people too because they feel it becomes almost familial. There's a camaraderie forming that when you share and become vulnerable about the ups and downs, it strengthens your team and the connection on the team. So look, here's, here's the interesting spin on this is think about a conversation you'll have with someone where you'll ask them to share an idea, a feeling, or an emotion. A lot of people feel put on the spot. It's sometimes it's not even they don't know the answer. They're just feeling like put on the spot. So if I say to you, you know, what are your three favorite foods? Well, if I give you a minute to think about that, anybody could come up with that in a second, but someone might freeze if they're immediate at, immediately asked that. Well, see, when it comes to motivators, here's what I think happens to a lot of people. There's two things that are going on here. One is people are resigned to the fact that the only motivators in the workplace are money, health benefits, time off, flexible schedule. They're not even thinking, what else is even out there? Nothing's being offered to me. Is there anything else? They don't even think to ask. That's one problem. The second problem is people have put their heads down for so long. And when you ask people why they're passionate about their job, in many cases, their answer is, well, I've got to support my family. I've got to support my kids. This is what I'm good at. This is what I do. And they've really lost the ability to understand the purpose and the why of what they do. So if you're not very clear on the purpose and why of what you do, it's very unlikely that you're going to be very clear on the motivation for why you're doing it, aside from the obvious, which is to support your family. So Ted, why do you do this job? Is it because you love it? Like what motivates you about this job? This job's uh, my hobby. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the thing I wanted to do when I got out of school but I was pregnant out to here and needed to be a capitalist. And this job, it, although it's a great deal of fun and challenging, it, it's not really the kind of uh, pay you can raise a family on. Well, that's true. And, that, and that's what, you know, I've always loved radio and I had aspirations to radio. And I frankly didn't go into radio because of the financial limitations of it. But see, what's interesting is in Ted's case, he really loves his job. But when you think about starting to discover what your true motivators are and what people could do in the workplace, it's not just someone asking you, it's you speaking up for what you want. Now, what's funny is in the worlds of the military and often in the worlds of professional sports, how do, how do, how do, we, how do we motivate people? Military, they scream at recruits. There's, there's insults, there's humiliation, and so there's... There's this approach of this is how we're going to motivate people. And in the military, it typically works because there's such a, an effective level of conditioning and expectation that actually one size fits all does work pretty effectively in the military. Let me, let me segue for a moment. I have a caller. Welcome to the show. Mark, how are you, sir? I am awesome. How are you? I'm fantastic. Matt from Amherst. Matt, uh, great great show today, man. Um, 
you know, my thoughts on this is something that's worked for me and not maybe not everybody's designed for it, but I'm a huge believer in holding yourself accountable in front of the people you're trying to lead. So, for example, when you screw up, you own it and you ask for their help. Allow, you know, allow yourself to be helped. Um, and, you know, and I find that is a, an excellent motivating tool. It's, it's worked for me. You kind of show your your humanity, you come down off the throne and become, you know, one of the commoners. Hey, you know, maybe that's not the best way to describe it, but you're one of them. You show that, hey, you know, I screw up too. Um, and, you know, I, I, I feel that helps in the buy-in. Matt, thank you very much for the call. I really appreciate that. I'm going to talk about that a minute, what Matt said, because I think he makes a great point. And, you know, accountability is a very big, interesting word. Uh, One of the things I've been thinking a lot about in the last couple of weeks because of some things going on in my personal life is the language of apology and how people apologize and how people own it. You know, we use that expression, own it. And so this is the thing about accountability. What Matt's talking about is, you know, standing in front, saying this was on me. And frankly, one of the important things, things I think there is in owning it is accepting responsibility even if you don't think it is totally on you. Even if you think it's partially on you, because at the end of the day, what's the big deal? Well, be- that is a leader. That is a, a leader. A leader takes responsibility for all of it and carries the responsibility to the next step. It's and Ted, it's so crazy, right? Because leaders, if you think about it, well, they have the worst of both worlds. They can't take the credit, but they have to take the blame. Absolutely R- right. Right. That, that comes with the territory. Right? It's. That's the job. But, uh, but I, want, I want our listeners to think about this because Matt's point's really well taken. Is I want you to think about, I talked a few weeks ago about this example of um, follow the leader, leading by example. And one of the points I made on that show is that's assuming people see the example you're setting. That's assume all your habits are good. Well, this business of holding yourself accountable in front of your team, here's the key. You can't pick and choose. Right? Because if you if you hold yourself accountable some of the time, but then other times you don't necessarily hold yourself accountable, it's not gonna go well in in the in what you're trying to accomplish and achieve by motivating your team will fall short because your the precedent and pattern you'll have set is inconsistent. Yeah, you have to be consistent. You know, and and so to me it's very important to be clear what an accountable behavior is to you because accountability for some people is different than accountability for others. And you can say, I own it, but you know what I would ask you if you were my boss? If you said, hey, this was on me and I own it? I mean, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, but I would say, well, what are you going to do to make it different next time? Because it's one thing to own it. It's another thing to be in touch with what you did wrong and why you need to do it differently and better next time and how. So uh, great point, Matt. Always love having you on the show. And so, look, when we come back in our our next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about how motivation is used in sports. And then we're going to talk about four different ways you can motivate people effectively, really, in the workplace or in sports or even at home for that matter. So think about it this way. You've got four high-level categories of motivation. These are what we're going to talk about when we come back. One is extrinsic motivation. One is intrinsic motivation. One is introjected motivation. How do you like that one, Ted? Goody. 
and one is identified motivation. So stay with us. We have a great rest of the show coming up, and we'll be back after the break. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome back to I Communicate. And uh, again, if you want to call in, it's 508-871-7000. You know, I'm a big sports guy. I'm a sports writer, a freelance sports writer in my free time. And I uh, cover the Boston sports teams. I also coach youth sports and baseball and basketball I love to play sports. I love to watch sports. I'm a big sports guy. So I'm going to I'm going to approach sports motivation a little different way than you may expect. You know, we know there's different kind of motivators in sports. One of my favorite motivators growing up, I feel very differently now, was Bobby Knight. You know, I I I used to think Bobby Knight just that military style coaching, he had it figured out. And frankly, he did for a while. But then he just lost all control of sensibilities and boundaries. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I want to go to bad for Bobby, okay? okay? Because Bobby was at a point in time when people's education drastically changed. That's a great point. There, there was no ROTC. Yep. There was no sense of discipline at the school at all. Uh, kids were not getting it at home. So... He was there at the cusp when the people coming in were like, "What are you talking about, man?" Well, well, Ted. Not only that, no, that that's a fantastic point. And two responses, I'll say. Number one, I know Bobby Knight when he was criticized, he always used to point to his graduation rate. He always had one of the highest graduation rates. But here's the thing about Bobby Knight. What was interesting is I up until and I saw a documentary which changed my mind a little bit. But up until about I'm going to say late '80s, maybe early '90s. The other thing I used to say about Bobby Knight is, if you are a parent and you send your kid there, don't complain. You know what you're getting. I mean, there's no, no, he's, there's no it's secrets here. He's a known here. commodity. He's a known commodity. So here's the thing. So Bobby Knight had a one-size-fits-all. It worked for a while, and then he went kind of off the deep end. Then you look at former Celtics coach Casey Jones, who was a very quiet leader. I mean, he wasn't a screamer. I mean, I've seen all kinds of interview with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and different Celtics over the years who've talked about that, you know, he was a pretty mellow coach. Wasn't a pushover, but he was pretty mellow. But here's here's the what I want you to think about with sports leadership. If you're a coach, if I had a nickel for every time I heard a coach say, well, Mark, I understand. Certain kids need a pat on the back. Certain kids need a kick in the butt. I understand. It's different. It's different. It's different. They know it, but the question is when they get emotionally charged and triggered during a game, during a practice, are they being self-aware enough to stop themselves and not yell at this kid or not do it because you know that's not going to motivate and push him? And that's where I see a lot of coaches struggle, especially at the high school, middle school age level for coaches, is they know their kids, they know which ones need to be pushed and not, but when push comes to shove and that communication takes place, they can't execute it that way. So 
look, motivation's tricky. There's different ways to motivate people. And as I get into these four levels of motivation, I just want to add one other point leading into this because this cracks me up the most. If there's one part of society where there is a one-size-fits-all for motivation, it's salespeople, right? Salespeople are only driven by money. They're driven by president's club and bonuses and commission checks. And we just always assume the primary motivator for salespeople is money. And Ted, I think you and I both have a lot of experience. We know that if we had a did a survey, probably the majority of salespeople would acknowledge they're driven by money. Agreed? Well, that's part of the culture of sales to answer in that way. But we know differently. That's a great point because, right, because if, if you were being interviewed for a sales position and they said to you, I could tell us what drives you and you don't answer money, they're going to be like, oh, man. I, next. Next. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. That's so. So here's the thing. Look. Again, if you're a sales leader, there are other things that motivate salespeople besides money. And here are your high-level buckets, people. When you're trying to do high-level buckets, and the first one's obvious because we were just talking about it's an extrinsic motivator. And I have had debates, Ted, with people over the years on the short-term and long-term benefits of extrinsic motivators. And see, for me... I don't think extrinsic motivators develop habits and long-term behaviors. Right. Very short-lived. Short-lived. It's instant gratification. You get good grades. And listen. And it sends the signal that that's what is a positive way of handling an issue. Absolutely. So you've got two issues going on there, right? The first issue is if you're incentivizing your kids to do grades, to do chores for responsible behavior, then... Their motivation is to please you or appease you or an extrinsic motivator. It's not because they genuinely want to do it. And, and again, I mentioned this earlier in the show. I'm not proposing that kids are going to jump for joy to do chores. But the point I'm trying to make is you have to use ext- extrinsic motivators selectively. And it can't be your go-to all-the-time way to motivate people. Can I give you an example? Please. I mean, it's very, it's very straightforward with a kid anyway. Um, You know, the first time you incentivize the kid to bring the milk in in the morning and you you say, you do that all week, I'll give you a quarter. Well, you know, a year later you say, well, bring the milk in and while you're doing that, bring in the newspaper and go out and see if uh, there's any mail in the box. And the kid's going to say, well, wait a minute, uh, a quarter? Well, what what else are you going to do for me? And this will go on. This will go on until... You don't have any money left to give. And that isn't the way to motivate someone to continue the process. Well, Ted, I, I, that is something I have to be very honest. That is something I, I've, I've taught about extrinsic motivators, and somehow I've missed this because when you talk about setting a precedent and setting expectations, once that has been done, that's a brilliant point. And uh, it really, and then not only does it set the expectations for wanting more and expecting it, but here's the ultimate problem. Then when you pull the rug out, rug out from under them, now where are they? Well, okay, well, I don't want to do this now. And now it feels awful, and now it feels forced. And where are you? And where are you? When, when you hire somebody to do a job and they don't do it, who has to do it? That's right. The yep. person who hired the failed employee yeah. has to do the work. 
That's the way it always is. Yeah, that's that's fabulous. And so, okay, so you've got extrinsic motivators. Now let's talk about the kind of motivator that people really struggle to understand, and that, those are intrinsic motivators. And I can put this in the simplest way you've probably ever heard it. An intrinsic motivator is you would do it. You would you do you love to do something so much that you wouldn't need to get paid for it. Like that's an intrinsic motivator. Ted is not working at this radio station because he's trying to get rich. He's doing it because he loves it. We won't tell Chris, but he's doing no, it. No, no, no. Chris knows. Chris it's knows, okay. right? So, so he does it because he loves it. I say to people all the time, because of my past, when I have the ability, even at a one percent level. To impact someone's confidence, self-esteem, mindset, attitude, whatever it is, that is such a rush for me that I do a lot of pro bono work and the money becomes secondary for me at times because it is an intrinsic satisfaction. And I had, Ted, I don't know if I've ever told this story on the show, but I, I dated a girl about six or seven years ago and she made this comment to me. I'll never forget this. She said, there is no such thing as a selfless act. And I said, what do you mean? I, like, I was stunned. I was like, what a horrible attitude. What do you mean by that? And she goes, because even when you do nice, charitable, philanthropic, intrinsic things, you're still getting a benefit from it. So to me, if you're still getting a benefit, that's not a completely selfless act. And I thought about it and I said, geez, I, 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 can, I get that. Like, I, I can see what she's saying. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's very much an Eastern philosophy um, about accepting our true motivations. And when you step out into the world, don't fool yourself first because you're just living a lie. Yeah. Now, that's very, it's a very Eastern philosophy. You know, the way we deal with it here in the West is, uh, you know, the, the story about lying once you start lying, how do you keep track? How do you reel it back in? And that's what happens to people with themselves. So it's an Eastern philosophy, but the way we deal with it here is a little different. Well, and, and so, but I think what's really important to know is that it is important to be honest about it. And so, like I said, you would do it for free. You get a rush. You get such a great feeling of happiness and positivity that you enjoy doing it intrinsically. Well, I think your friend, uh, the, the, the person you dated yes. six months ago, may have been trying to communicate that it's through respect that we are rewarded. And... When you do good with, and you feel you've done well, you feel respect for yourself. And, you know, when you go out into the world and somebody says to you, well, what's your motivation for being in sales? You got to say money because if you say respect, they're going to come back with a million other questions and you're not going to be on the top of the list. Well, you, you know what it was, Ted? When she first said it, the, the, the point I made to her right away is I said, okay, even if I can buy that, which I can now, it, that, that, that doesn't mean the person loses credit for doing the act, right? You still get credit even if it's intrinsically beneficial to you. Yeah. yeah I, I think there's, a, there's been a real breakdown in our culture um, because people really believe that doing something symbolic is symbolic. They, they don't get it that something 
tactile, real, has to happen, and a person responds to it, which is what becomes symbolic. There's a process to symbolism. And, you know, I really think the way, especially the, what we're seeing on the streets these days, people think acts are symbolic and therefore they are the symbol mm. of this act. Yep. And it just doesn't work that way. Yep. Well, so, okay, so before we wrap up our third segment, let me just cover the final two aspects of the four high-level motivations. So the third one I talked about was introjected motivation. And put very simply, that is you, you do it out of guilt. You know, if you don't do it, you'll feel guilty, and that's what drives you. Ah, yes, guilt. And, and boy, I, I can think of lots of times where I've had introjected motivation, Ted. I don't know about you. Um, and then the final one oh, is... Boy. And I alluded to this a little earlier, this identified motivation. And this is where I think most of the human race struggles. The identified motivation is when a person knows that they need to do something, but either hasn't decided to do anything about it or doesn't know how to do anything about it. Boy, I got to start eating better. Boy, I got to exercise more. Boy, I got to find a new job. Boy, I got to do. And, and you know it. You know, you know you need it, but you just can't get over that hump to be motivated enough to do it. So, look, when we come back for our final segment, I want to get into personal motivation a little bit. And and I want to get into other ways you can motivate people and motivate yourself. So uh, we'll be right back for our last segment. I'm Mark Altman. This is I Communicate. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, Ted, I I did a total U-turn during this this break, and we're going to go a totally different direction this last segment because there's a really critical piece we have to cover, and I will continue to do shows on different angles of motivation, but we do need to cover this because it fits right into this. All right, lay it on me. And what it is is... You know, I talked earlier about how we just assume the motivation, but we need to understand what drives the assumptions, right? Because yeah. it's one thing to know we do it, but we have to stop ourselves and know what drives it. Absolutely. So it's trust. It starts with trust because we don't typically trust people. We don't inherently believe they will be direct and honest. So we tend to guess. You know, it's like when we make those snap judgments. We've talked about this on the show before. It's just easier to make a snap judgment. It protects yourself. You don't have to get out of your comfort zone and think. That's right. You know, and so we've done shows on this. So that's one reason. But this is a big one. And one, it's our, it's our desire to control outcomes and to really be in control. Um, and, you know, we talk about on the show about being curious. And see, to me, about motivation is... You know, there's a couple of things that can go wrong. One, assume the inherent ways they think they're going to be motivated can work. And the second example is to not ask follow-up questions to really explore that motivation a little deeper. So you've got the issue of low trust. You've got the issue of controlling outcomes. You've got insecurity in relationships that tries to uh, have us predict the motivations of others. i got to tell you, Ted, frankly... In the male-female dynamic of a relationship, I I feel like 
that movie, What Women Want, with Mel Gibson, hmm. if I could read, this is not a criticism of women. I'm just saying, I, I can't, I don't feel like I have yet uh, built the capacity to really understand the motivators. Well, stop right there, because therein lies the mystery of a woman. Therein lies the benefit to a man and a woman, that there is this differential. Now, you know, and this can be not just men and women, but women and men and men and women and men and men and women and women. I, I get all that, but it's about personality and the word you used a moment ago, trust. Well, so so the funny thing is, is, you know, there's this expression of, I'm an open book. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm transparent. And think about that. Typically, when you hear people use an expression like yeah, that, it's quite the opposite. Well, fact, not though. not only is it quite the opposite, but they they say it so proudly. I'm an open book. Right, like it's emphatic. Right, 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 right. So, so what's interesting about this? What drives assumptions about motivations? We've got trust. We've got the need for control. We've got insecurity. Okay, but there's also and I don't even mean to use this word. I just can't, maybe uh, not malicious, but there's a self-indulgent attempt here, right? Because To manipulate. To manipulate. To gain an outcome by assuming a motivation and how we can read into situations. Well, we are, we are result-driven when dealing with interpersonal skills. So you're absolutely right. People don't even know they're doing it. It's an involuntary muscle action, and in this case, your brain is a muscle. It's so funny, Ted. I, you're so right what you said. I'm just sitting here listening to you, and you said, just to repeat for our audience, we're results-driven when it comes to interpersonal skills. Wow. Like, wow. Because if we're results-driven, it totally spits in the face of everything we talk about on this show all the time, emotional intelligence, curiosity, all these components. If you can overcome your base method of being a human being and reach out of the gutter and use your mind, pull yourself up, life is so much more colorful and better. That's just staggering for me to think about. It's accurate. It's just staggering. And so, look, here's what it comes down to, right? You ever had a conversation when something has happened, okay, and you say to the person, Ted, you're going to love this, I know why you're doing this. Uh, yeah. Doing what? Right? Yes. yes. How many times have people had conversations, I know what you're doing, I know why you're doing this? And right then and there, you are violating the cardinal sin of assuming and trying to identify someone's motivation. By the way, I've learned this lesson. Frankly, even if you feel you're 99.9% sure, it's going to backfire on you because they're not going to give it to you. Even if if you're right, they're not going to say, well, you're right. You guessed it. That's exactly why I'm doing it. Especially if there's a negative intent associated with it. So... When people discover, here, here's what happens. When people discover you're assuming bad motives, negative intent, what's going to happen? They're going to get offended. They're going to get well, angry. They're going to fold their arms, and you're not going to get any impact with words or activities or anything you offer. It will not be processed. 
Right. And so so then when Ted says results driven when it comes to interpersonal communication, think about exchanges like that you've been involved in and you're not going to get the results when you assume motivation and assume motives. You're just not going to get it. So if you are a results driven, at least do me a favor and do the right things to, so you'll have a better chance of achieving the results and setting yourself up for success. Well, let me point out that um, Mark is extremely good at doing that. And you can hear it every time we do a show. He will present a certain amount of information and then ask for my expert opinion. <laughs> and of course, I'm going to be immediately willing to spill my guts because he asked in such a way that it made it possible for me to elevate myself to his level rather than being pressed into a situation where I have to give my opinion. Well, here's what's interesting about that, Ted. You know, that phrase, asking for an expert opinion, we both feel is so powerful. But I want to frame this a little differently because I talked earlier in the show about motivating people to talk, right? So when I think of motivating people to talk, let me, let me, I've shared this a long time ago on the show, but what I mean is that when you are asking someone for their opinion, part of what is important here, in this case with Ted, and I'm not just saying this, I really, I mean, he's added a lot of value to, you know, my life, to the show, because he has had such a vast amount of valuable life experience. So Ted's an exception in the example I'm giving. But what I am saying is, even if I didn't know Ted from a hole in the wall, Okay, if I don't know him from a hole in the wall, am I going to assume that Ted has something to offer? We tend to label people at certain levels of success in our society. You know, we always associate success, or not always, but often associate success with intelligence, book smarts, IQ, and things like that. So if I walk out of this building today and I pass by the janitor, and I only use the janitor as, a, as an example because I think there's a stigma around a job like that. You know, if I thought the janitor could add value, I wouldn't think twice about stopping to ask the janitor his opinion, her opinion on something. And so this, this assumption of motivators and what someone can bring to the table and knowledge, it's all in this same bucket. And I have to tell you, so much of what I help people at with Mindset Go is this aspect of conversational intelligence, and that is creating those opportunities to motivate people to talk and share ideas and participate in meetings and feel comfortable in virtual communication scenarios and feel like their opinion actually matters. So those are things that it's really hard to get people to talk. And what about in a sales role? In a sales role, you have to get a comfortable, not only do you have to motivate a client to feel comfortable talking or prospect talking, you have to motivate them to want to hear you at all. So that's the takeaways. We are going to do more shows on motivation. It's such a diverse, large topic. But for today, if you want more information about our programs at Mindset Go around sales, leadership, employee engagement, motivation, habit change, things like that. 978-206-1535. What's that number? 978-206-1535. You can email me at info at mindsetgo.com. Have a wonderful rest of the day and week, and we'll see you next time. I'm Mark Altman. been listening to I Communicate 
with your host, Mark Altman. Join us again each week at this time on Full Service Radio, WCRN.